Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. And uh, I want to speak to you today about uh, a passion for knowing Christ. I've been uh, just touching on, since we finished our little series on First Peter 3, I wanted to touch on a few subjects that have been sort of uh, mulled over in my heart, and this is one of those in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, three greatest words in any Baptist preacher's vocabulary from the congregational point of view. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. But he's only at the beginning of chapter 3. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but rather it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence, I more so. Then in verse 5 and 6, he recounts that and in verse 7, what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. But indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 10, because I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I was uh, seated at a meal in a restaurant with a, recently with a man with a mustache. I had uh, a pile of green beans here, a pile of mashed potatoes here. I had some coleslaw over here and some pickled red beets that I dearly love, and nobody makes them like Mary Billings used to make them. And she always kept me in red beets, and hasn't anybody kept me in red beets since she left? And woe is me without any red beets. <laughs> I'm hoping it pays to advertise. <laughs> and he had on his plate a, a beautiful, fatty, juicy, delicious-looking slab of prime rib. And uh, there's something about watching a man with a mustache chew. I, I haven't quite figured out what it is, but when you watch a man with a mustache chew, the food always looks better. Have you noticed that? Anybody else ever notice that? You're missing out on the important things in life. You want to watch how people eat. You watch somebody with a mustache sometime chew. It makes the food look better. I don't know why. It just seems like there's more movement. There's more decoration to it. It gives a certain motion of elegance to the chewing process and makes the food look better and taste better. I thought, I wonder if I could put on a mustache and these vegetables would taste better. And the longer I looked at that prime rib, I thought, that's what I need just to taste. That. Boy, I sure miss that. It's been a long time. So I went back up, and the man was cutting there at the line. I said, just give me a wee little taste of that. I took one bite, and it somehow it didn't taste as good as it looked on the mustache chewing. And I only took one bite. 
And then I realized that not everything I want is ultimately satisfying. And Paul is warning the Philippians in chapter 2 against pride and describes the model of the humility of Jesus. And in chapter 3, he describes a warning. He says, I know it's tedious for, for you for me to warn you about false teachers again. But the truth is, it is safe. Better to be safe and bored than excited and sorry. Isn't that what he's saying in verse 1? And then he moves to the passion of his life. I worked hard at the works thing. I tried hard to be righteous before God in my own strength. I sought to do everything I knew to do to please the Father. And it was never satisfying, not to God and not to me. And after I'd had it all and had the very best, I was still unsatisfied. And Paul is saying that even in that time before he came to Christ, there was a passion in his life to know God, and he didn't even know what the passion was. But now that he knows Christ, he realized that was his, realizes that was his passion from the very beginning. And you see that as he works his way down here. And he says in, in the first nine verses, he states out, he speaks forth three comparisons to shed light on this passion. Notice the first comparison is between false teachers and believers and true teachers and believers. It's language that you and I probably would not want to use, but he was Jewish and he used it because it was something that the Jews often used of the Gentiles. They spoke of them as dogs. Now notice three things he says about these false believers. They are dogs, they are evil workers, and they are mutilators. Underline that. Do you see that? These false teachers, and he turns the phrase that they would use on Gentiles back on them and says, they're dogs, a ravenous bunch of scavengers because they try to pick up what somebody else has cast off. And he's saying they're going around trying to steal from the body true believers and tell them that they have to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. Secondly, he calls them evil workers. And the construction is such that it means they're evil is as, I mean, evil does as evil is. They do evil because they are evil. Their minds are set on the flesh, and that is more important than pleasing God. And finally, he says they're mutilators. Circumcision was the first right of the law, the first obligation. And they're saying that Christians, to be really converted, must be circumcised. Now in verse 3, he compares that three times with true believers. True believers, now watch this and underline that, they worship God in the Spirit, they boast or glory in Christ, and they have no confidence in the flesh. Now that's the mark of a true believer. Never forget that. A true believer is not necessarily one who's joined a church. A true believer is not necessarily one 
who uh, gives money. A true believer is one who worships God not in the letter, but in the spirit. A true believer is one who boasts of Christ and never of himself. Folks, he's going to say it three times in this text. We glory in Christ Jesus. And the word is more than glory, it's boast. We don't have one thing to boast about. You're a good person. You're a moral person. You're an ethical person. But you have nothing to boast of in yourself. A true believer is one who boasts in Christ. Without Jesus, I'm nothing. Without Jesus, you're nothing. Without Jesus, this choir's nothing. Without Jesus, Randy is nothing. She just sang, but she's nothing without Christ. That's a true believer. And we have no confidence in the flesh. There is no way that I can do enough good to please Almighty God. I don't rely upon my church membership. I don't reply, rely upon my good works. I don't rely upon anything in the flesh. I have no confidence in the flesh. In fact, I carried that to such an extreme, and I have uh, watched so many thousands of people in my years of ministry I'm not surprised at anything that anybody does. I'm not even surprised at anything you do. Because there is no confidence in the flesh. In the flesh. And so there it is. The second comparison is works with grace. And it leads naturally, doesn't it, in verse 4. I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Now, if you wanted to brag, I can brag, he is saying, about my works. I can brag, I can boast, I can glory in my works. You want to have a contest with me? Don't try to compete with Paul in the works of the flesh. You're going to lose every time, every time. I am not going to play one-on-one -on -one with Jeff Watson. I'm going to lose every time. I know that. Even though I'm as fast as grease lightning, He's seven inches taller than I am, and I'm not playing one-on-one -on -one because I'm going to lose every time. Right, Jeff? Don't, don't boast too much now. <laughs> uh, can you be, still beat your daddy? Okay. I'm, I'm not going up against him. And Paul says, if anybody wants to go up against me, here is my credential. And he goes back to two things. He goes to his heredity, and he goes to his achievements. He goes back to his background and he lists seven reasons why he could boast. First, he said, I'm an eighth day Jew. That means on the eighth day after his birth, in perfect fulfillment of the law, he never missed a step. He was, he was properly dedicated in the temple and met all the requirements, including circumcision. Secondly, he says, I am of the nation of Israel, the stock of Israel. I'm a Jew. Thirdly, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a boastful statement. Benjamin was the last tribe to be faithful. Benjamin and Judah were the last remnant uh, left in the kingdom. Benjamin was a very, that was a big deal. My brother had a write-up in the, in the Wall Street Journal this week. And uh, they even had a, a picture of him and 
and uh, somebody said, aren't you proud of him? And I said, well, I'll tell you after I read the article. <laughs> That's my heredity, see? Paul says, I'm, I'm out of the family of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Fourthly, he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, meaning I'm at the ultimate of what the Hebrew uh, what a Hebrew person is. Everything that they thought important, I was. Then he goes to his achievements. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Paul said, I chose to be a Pharisee. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, folks, you're not probably as righteous externally as a Pharisee. They gave tithes of all that I, they possessed. Sometimes they gave a double tithe. They even tithed their mint, anise, and cumin, the scripture says. They even tithed their herbs. <laughs> and uh, we're worried about net or gross. And they're worried about anise and cumin. I mean, he said, concerning the law, I was blameless. Nobody could make a charge against me. Concerning zeal, I was so zealous for God, I persecuted the church. I beat up on the church, and I did it in the name of God. Next, he says, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was absolutely without any blame. Now, how could you fault that? Paul never spoke against the law. He only spoke against our ability to keep the law. And then Paul is not claiming perfection. He's just showing how futile it was. And he had reached the ultimate as far as a Jew was concerned. But it wasn't satisfying. Now listen to me right now. The primary question for every person in this auditorium is, what must I do for God to declare me righteous and worthy to live with him forever? Because in the final analysis, that's what's most important. What must I do for God to declare me righteous and live with him forever? Every person in this room chooses to come to God by works or by grace. You either choose to try to work your way to God and please him by your morality and good ethics, or you are declared righteous by God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you compare works with grace, Paul goes on to say, but what things were gained to me, all those things that were valuable, now I count them loss. Grace has freed me from the, the bondage of the law. I don't have to keep the law. I'll tell you, there's nothing busier than the day before vacation. There's nothing busier than the day before vacation. Somebody asked me, give me one tip on how I can get a lot of work done. I said, treat every day as if it were the last day before your vacation. But I'd be dead in about five of those, wouldn't you, Don? But I'll tell you, there's nothing any better than after about three days of vacation and there are no telephones and no schedules and no place to go and nobody to see. You just do what you want. If you want to eat at 12.30, breakfast, you can eat breakfast at 12.30. How many love breakfast at 12.30? Isn't that great to be freed from any obligation? I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to be anywhere. I don't have to teach Sunday school. Isn't that great? What a feeling. I don't even have to get ready for it. Paul said, that's the way I felt when I came to Christ, by grace. And stop trying to come to God by works. I was freed. Indeed, he said, I count everything loss 
for the surpassing greatness, the high excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I've counted everything as rubbish that I may gain him. Now, Paul enters into a third comparison. That is, he compares his former life with his new life. He really starts that in verse 7, doesn't he? The uh, things that were valuable before are now loss. What was gain is loss, and what was loss is now gain. And he goes on to say that uh, uh, he, in verse 7, uh, or verse 8 rather, that he counts everything loss so that he can know Christ. Now, stop right here for a minute. Paul was writing to the Gnostics. And when he wrote to the Gnostics, they thought that there was a secret body of knowledge that uh, uh, you had to get to. The Pharisees thought they had it. And see, Paul is saying, I'll tell you what it is you're really after. There's no secret to it. What all of us want is to know God through Christ. And I will give up everything for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now watch how many times he speaks of Christ. I have counted things lost for Christ in verse 7, the knowledge of Christ in verse 8, that I may gain Christ, verse 8, and verse 9, be found in him. The mere thought of his Damascus Road experience brought a re-evaluation a renewed appraisal as to what was really important. I'll tell you what. If you're not a Christian, when you came to Jesus Christ or when you come to Jesus Christ, one of the things that will happen is there will be a total reevaluation of what is important and what is not important. As Christians, when we compare this life with the old life, if there has not been a transformation of values, something is missing in your life. The negative appraisal reminds us of an important component of any salvation experience. I'm looking back, and he says, man, I can't believe I did those things. Now, listen to me carefully. I don't believe anybody can come to Jesus Christ until he has come to renounce his past life. There has to be a step in which I say, what was gained is loss. What was great is now unimportant. What was significant is now insignificant. There needs to be a transformation. There's been all too little emphasis placed on renouncing the former life. I don't want anything to do with the world. I don't want an opportunity to experience 900 drug experiences. I don't want that, Paul says. I am delighted to know Jesus Christ. And in knowing Christ, I am content and satisfied. And so he gives the other side, gaining Christ, knowing Christ. It's better than all the combined value of his former life. And then he speaks of righteousness. That I may gain Christ and be found, verse 9, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now listen, there is a certain human moral righteousness that you can achieve up to a certain level, but it will not satisfy God. What God is looking for is the righteousness of Christ. Paul said, I've been through the law and I still wasn't perfect. Christ went through the law and he fulfilled all of the law. 
And so I want and I am now found in him. Here's another point that you must remember. For Paul, all people were either in Adam or in Christ. You were either under Adam or you were under Christ. You were either under sin or under Jesus. You were either under works or under law. And that's the way Paul looked at the whole human race. But now that I'm in Christ, he said, I have a righteousness which is not my own. Wow. I don't have to work anymore to please God. The reason I seek a pure and holy life is not to please the Father, but the reason I seek a pure and holy life is because God has imputed, he has imparted righteousness to me legally. He is the judge, and even though all the evidence is against me, here it is, here's my whole life, and God says, you are innocent because of Christ. Christ paid for you. Isn't that a wonderful thought? You know, if that happens in courtrooms today, we say, that rascal, he got away with it. <laughs> that rascal, he got away with it, whatever his name is, however popular he is. But did you know that that's really true of every one of us? We got away with it? <laughs> because in Christ who went through the law, was tested by the law, and never failed the law, God takes the righteousness of Christ and imparts it to us, and on the basis of Christ declares us innocent and forgiven. What a tremendous thought. We are not held accountable for our past lives. Praise God. I'd love to show you the past life of some people here on a screen. God's got a videotape. Suppose we drop that screen, Tony, and play the past life. Let's play Steve Hines' past life in front. Steve, you, would you like for all these people to know your past? Ooh, sirree, Bob, he says. So I don't have my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith or out of the faithfulness. Faith comes in two forms. One is subjective. I have faith or I have faith in a faithful Christ. This is a faithful Christ who now gives me faith. It's interesting here, then Paul takes up, in a general way, he takes up the three steps of the believer's life, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Every teenager ought to know those three theological terms. Justification means God's given to me what I don't deserve, and declared me righteous because of Christ's faithfulness and declares me forgiven just as if I had never sinned. Sanctification is the process. What, from the time I'm saved to the time I die, I am going through the process of sanctification. Some, and it's not a lot of fun, amen? Sometimes it's bankruptcy. Sometimes it's suffering. Sometimes it's rejection. Sometimes it's pain. But through all of that, God's purpose is to make me more and more into the image of Christ, to make me holy. That's sanctification. And it's going on. I trust you're yielding to it. Don't fight it. Don't fight a struggle against what God is doing in your life. And finally, there's glorification. At the end, when God's done trying to sanctify me, there's going to be a, the coming of the Lord Jesus and I'm going to be raised to rapture one or the other. Amen? I'm going up. You can do what you want, but I'm going up. And then Paul gets into one of the greatest subjects in all of the New Testament. 
I confess to you, I sometimes haven't had the passion I should have had for this. But he says, my passion is to know Christ. I want to know him. From the moment I'm saved to the day I die, I have one goal in mind. I want to know Christ. And then he lists four ways to know Jesus. You know, it's one thing to ask, do you know Christ? That means, are you saved? But folks, salvation is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. The rest of life is a walk to get to know Christ better. Here are the four ways we get to know him. Number one, we get to know Christ when we experience the power of his resurrection. Now, what is he referring to? What can he possibly be referring to? I believe that the, the, the context dictates this. When I trusted Jesus Christ, and if you're not a Christian, when you trust Christ, this is what will happen to you. If you are a Christian, this is what should have happened to you. When you trust Christ, you experience in your life the same power that Jesus experienced when God raised him from the dead. You died to an old life and you experienced that infusion of power when you were given brand new life and made a new creature. You know, as I was studying this and pondering this and I just read this passage over and over again, it hit me. Have you ever wondered, I know this is kind of wacky, but stay with me, will you? Okay? All you wacky people, stay with me. You normal people, tune me out. Um, what did Jesus feel like when he was raised from the dead? Have you ever wondered that? I wonder what it felt like to suddenly realize that he had come back. And he was now conscious of his glorified body. Now, come on, think about that. Isn't that exciting? I, mean, I think he was ecstatic. I think he was saying, wow, what power. Um, well, I know he's God, but wait a minute. He had just been man. He'd been thirsting. He'd been dusty. He'd been hot. He, he, he'd gone through all that we go through. And now he, he's raised from the dead. What, what did he feel like? Do you remember the first day you were How many on the day you were saved, you had this tremendous euphoria? How many had a euphoria? Did you? Can you remember what you felt like? That is nothing compared to what Jesus must have felt like when he was resurrected. Now, that's what Paul is saying. When I accepted Christ, it was on that Damascus road. I, and now watch what happened, I think. You can go back to Acts 9 and read it. And there he's on the Damascus road with papers in his pocket to go kill Christians. And he sees this, this bright sun striking him down. And he says, who art thou, Lord? And the voice came back from heaven. Do you remember saying, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. See, Paul was persecuting the body of Christ, Christians. It was the same as persecuting Jesus. And from that day on, he wanted to know Christ. He wanted to know who is this Jesus that he'd been persecuting. I know it doesn't fit, but... Uh, 
How many of you were secretly in love long before you actually met your wife or your husband? I mean, you had your eye on him or her. How many of you? Come on. Parker, you remember? You had your eye on her. You said, boy, that's the woman I want. That's the girl I want. You admired her. You watched her. You watched the way she did everything. But you wanted to get to know her more, didn't you? And you did. And it's still good, isn't it? Amen. Boy, isn't that encouraging? <laughs> and that's the way Paul was. My initial experience with Christ only led me to want to know him more and more and more. That's why he calls it the surpassing greatness, the surpassing excellency of the knowledge of Christ. You know, there are some people, after you get to know them, you wish you never had. Some people are frauds. It's all sizzle and no substance. It's all style and nothing underneath. And when you get to know them, you say, phooey. You know what phooey means? I don't either, but I use it once in a while. I know it's not a real cultured word, but... But after you get to know them, you don't... But no, Paul says no. When you get to know Jesus, then you want to know him more. And more. And he calls it a surpassing greatness. You never plumb the depths of the knowledge of Christ. It is so excellent. That's why I keep coming to church. That's why I keep studying the Bible. That's why I keep learning how to serve him. I want to know him and experience the power of his resurrection. And that same power which raised Jesus is now available to us. When I was in uh, Colombia one time for the missionary meeting, there was a missionary there who was a shade tree mechanic. You know what a shade tree mechanic is. And uh, everybody at mission meeting had brought their parts for him to fix their cars while they were there. And we'd gone through several years of kind of a shortfall on the Lottie Moon offering and there weren't a lot of new cars being bought. And uh, so the missionaries were having to really work hard at fixing up their cars. I mean, 100,000 miles on an interstate here, you can still drive a car another 100,000. But in Colombia, 100,000 miles would be like 400,000 miles here. But they were patching. And, and I remember during that time, we had a missionary in West Africa. His car got stolen. And the thieves deserted his car. They didn't want it. They left it on the road, left a note, said, we don't want this rattle trap. How about that? It was so bad, nobody wanted to steal it. You couldn't pay somebody to steal it. But he told me about a missionary who had been driving a car for two years, and it wouldn't start. And he always parked it on a hill so he could let it roll down and start. And then the missionary's family got sick, and he had to go back home, and a new missionary came and was given the car, and the new mission, they, they told him, they said, this car won't start. And the missionary, before he did anything, he raised the hood and he saw that there was a loose cable on the battery and he tightened the cable and the car started perfectly. And for two years, that missionary had been driving a car with a loose cable because he wasn't hooked into the power. He couldn't start. And Paul says, now here in my new life, I am experiencing day by day the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And if you want to know Jesus, you start by experiencing the power of the resurrection. You are changed from an old life to a new life. Secondly, 
If we want to know Christ, we must participate in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, what is Paul saying? If you really want to know somebody, you've got to experience what they experience. And the keynote of Jesus' life was his suffering. Suffering the death of Christ. When I come to Christ, I die to self. Paul says, I was baptized into his death, the fellowship of his death. Now I must participate in what Christ has done for me. He cannot contribute to Christ's sufferings. You may drive by a construction job and you'll see a man working on a scaffold. And you say, oh, that's Bill, my neighbor. He lives two blocks from me. But you don't really know him. Not until you spend time with Bill and get inside his life and participate in life and participate in his sufferings and know what's going on. Then you get to know Bill. I remember years ago when Gene Kelly was a sergeant. Gene, do you remember this? On the Winston-Salem Police Department. And uh, it was very easy to get permission to ride with the police. And I loved to ride with him, especially on a hot August night. You can't imagine what those policemen go through on a hot August night. But I thought, if I'm going to get to know Gene Kelly, I need to experience the fellowship of his sufferings. Amen? Now, I have suffered with him through those 70 and 80 mile rides chasing people. And brother, it was easy to preach on hell the next Sunday after you'd ridden with him in, in a squad car on a hot August Friday night. <laughs> it was easy to preach on fear. <laughs> but I remember those days. But after I spent, you don't spend eight hours with a policeman in his car without entering into the fellowship of his job and understanding what he feels, and understanding what he does, and understanding how he thinks. And that explained to me why Gene was the way he was. I remember my granddaddy who spent long hours plowing fields on a tractor. And when I would ask my granddad something, there were times when he'd just take a long pause to think about what he was going to say. And he used to wonder, why does granddad take so long? Come on, granddaddy, give me the answer. But he was used to long periods of solitude and a lot of time of thinking. And when I rode on a tractor with him, row after row after row, plowing the back 40, I then understood why granddad was the way he was because I'd entered into the fellowship of his experience. And Paul says, as we get to know Christ, that's the way we know him. We keep our eyes on him. We compare suffering to him. You measure everything you face by its, your relationship with Christ, not your relationship with others. That's the foundation of a good self-worth. I don't measure myself against what you've been through. I measure myself against the fellowship of Christ. Third, Paul said, if you want to know Christ, you need to be conformed to his death. I'm conforming to his death. You know what that means? When I was united to Christ, salvation, that was a legal act of God which made me one with Christ as marriage makes us one with a wife or a husband. 
But when I am conformed to his death, it is a daily process. That's why Paul said, I die daily. Every day, I need to think of it again. Let me die to sin. I want to treat sin as if it's not there. Let me, uh, excuse me, die to self. I want to treat self as if it's not there. It's not even alive. Let me die to greed. I want to treat greed as if money is not even there. That's what it means. The nature of salvation is death, but it is also a process of dying daily. That makes me a candidate for resurrection power. And the more I am conformed to his death, the more of his resurrection power he pours into me. You can't have resurrection power until you've died. You can't experience. So it makes sense for us to die daily. Every day, treat the world, sin, and the flesh as if they are dead. The world is not magically going away. Sin is not magically going away. You don't come to the place in your Christian experience where suddenly it's gone. I was feeding my granddaughter the other day and I took a spoon. Do you ever do this? I know this is silly for parents to do this. But she, there's some green thing she doesn't want to eat like green peas. But she loves Spaghetti. So I took a little spaghetti and I hid three green peas in the spoon under the spaghetti. And then like magic, I turned it into an airplane. And you got to hold it level, you know, or those peas will creep out and reveal themselves under the spaghetti. And that's a bad sign, right? And so I go, open up the airport door. Here comes Papa home. And the plane makes a quick landing. And you hope the peas stay on the spoon. It's magic, isn't it, how you can turn a spoon into an airplane. That's wonderful. But there's no magic that will make sin, the world, and the flesh go away. And the more I die, the more available is Christ's resurrection power to me. The last thing Paul says, if I want to know Christ... I must attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's glorification. I think he's, he's using a construction here that means out from the dead. As God works in my life, all my life, to make me conform to the image of Christ, to sanctify me, there is coming a day. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise, and we which are alive shall be caught up together to meet the Lord. Either by resurrection or by rapture, I will experience my last taste of resurrection power when Jesus Christ comes. And then I will be transformed. If I have died, I will be resurrected as Christ was resurrected. If I am alive, I will be raptured, but I'll be changed in a milli, milli, millisecond by the same power that brought Christ out of the grave. You and I will be transformed and then raptured and caught up to be with the Lord. And so shall we ever be with him. So to know Christ, let me experience the power of his resurrection. Let me live as though I have already been resurrected. Let me share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Let me conform to his death by the process each day when I'm tempted by sin to treat it as though it were dead. Until finally, my goal. I don't think Paul is saying, I hope, 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 I'm going to make it to the resurrection. 
He's saying, that's my ultimate goal and that's my final expectation. When Christ comes, I will, will be resurrected out from the dead. The construction out from would indicate that there will be some others left and they'll be left until the resurrection at the great white throne judgment of all the unbelievers. I want to ask you a question. Are you pressing on to know Christ? Are you any farther along in really knowing Jesus than you were a year ago? And I ask every one of you to examine your heart. Are you trying to please God with your works? Or have you put your faith in the work of Christ and have you let God make you righteous in him? If you were to stand today before God, would you be found in Adam or would you be found in Christ? Would you be found under sin and under works which come short or would you be found under Christ? Oh, Paul said, I have a passion. The thing that drives my life is I want to know more. I want to know Christ more. And everything else I had, I count but loss for the surpassing greatness. And there's no mystery. It comes through death, renunciation, and the trust of Christ. You experience the resurrection power of God. I want us to bow our heads for a moment. And I want you to honestly answer this question. I am going to look, but nobody else needs to look. How many of you would say, Pastor, I'm not sure that I have put my faith in the living Christ. I've been working hard. I've been joining churches, trying to be moral. I've been trusting in my own righteousness. How many of you would say, please pray for me because I'm not absolutely certain that my trust is in Christ. If I were to stand before God, I'm not absolutely certain that I would be under Christ. Slip your hand up and just put it back down. Just slip it up anywhere. Yes. Yes. Okay, quietly stand. Let's stand together. Father, work in our hearts to assure us that we're under the blood, under the covering, under the protection of Christ. In his name, amen. <laughs>